The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 92. Psalm 92. And it can be found on page 498 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, If you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to give one to you. You can pick that up at the info table over in the gallery after the service. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, and to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green, to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to uh, introduce you to Dan Murata, who's going to be preaching this morning. Uh, But before I do, uh, one quick announcement. If you're new to Park Church, we're so thankful that you'd come here. You're kind of catching on a Sunday like this a glimpse of who we are. And I say a glimpse uh, because as a church, we're more than kind of a a community that gathers on Sunday. God's actually called us to be a family uh, in this city that live on mission for his glory in the city. And so we gather on Sundays to worship Jesus because he's worthy. He's the king and the savior of the universe. Uh, We gather to learn from his word. We gather to celebrate the Lord's table together every week. But we also are sent out into the week and given a mission to reflect Christ's glory and to proclaim the gospel where he's called us to go. And so, um, again, we're thankful that you'd come here and join us on a Sunday. And we'd love to get to know you more. Maybe uh, answer some questions you might have if you're newer to Christianity or or you're new to park and just have some questions. Um, We have a meeting that's designed for you. Um, It's right after the service. We do this after every service. Right down this hallway, there's a room marked Introductions. Uh, One of our staff members will be there, uh, and we take about 10 minutes. It's about a 10-minute meeting just to get to know you a little bit, what brought you here, but also share with you a little of who we are and uh, what God's doing here and what God's called us to in the city, and then we can give you some next steps to getting involved if you're looking to get more connected to the life of this church family. So we'd love to get to know you, Um, and again, that's right after the service, right down this hallway off to your left in a room marked Introductions. Um, I'm excited to introduce to you all uh, Dan Murata. Many of you know Dan, but I'm going to have Dan come up. Um, Can you welcome, just give Dan a welcome as he comes on stage. This is is the good reverend Dan Murata, 
And uh, Dan is a, a, um, a wonderful friend uh, to Park Church. Uh, Dan and his wife, Rachel, uh, were at Park Church uh, for about three years, about three years, and they uh, were gospel community leaders. Dan served in this church community in so many ways, not just through leading gospel communities, but even um, he and Neil Long, one of our staff members right now, would teach this class. We called it Gospel Center Life, and they'd teach a class. And so many of you, as you got connected to Park Church, got connected through uh, sitting through a class uh, that Dan and Neil were co-teaching years ago. Um, and then in 2014, we sent out Dan and Rachel and their two kids at the time. They had two kids at the time uh, to do a church planting internship, a church planting kind of residency at Falls Church Anglican in Falls Church, Virginia, uh, where Dan was at for two years in a program called the Timothy Program. Yes. And, uh, and then uh, Falls Church uh, sent them out in 2016 to plant Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. They're right in the heart of Richmond, Virginia, a college town. Um, and so they planted Redeemer Anglican in 2016 mm-hmm. and have been laboring faithfully uh, in a number of ways. Um, they also went from two kids to four kids. So that's like, that's busy. And planting yeah. a church is also busy. I said, uh, I said in the first service, you know, planting a church, people can compare planting a church to having a baby. And I looked out into like mother's eyes and they're like, it's not like having, nothing's <laughs> like having a baby. Um, that's true. It's true. God have mercy on me. Uh, it's the hardest thing in the universe what you did. God loves you. Thank you. You're so great. <laughs> Um, planning a church is it's its own kind of like effort, and it's uh, it's its own kind of like exhaustion, and and then to have two kids kind of in that process is just a lot, and uh, and see the way God's poured out grace on their family, and through their family in Richmond, Virginia is is beautiful. Um, so we as a church are partnered with them. We've sent out a number of church plants, and one of those church plants is Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. And this is uh, Dan who has planted that church. So we partner with them financially. We're partnered together as friends that we learn from one another regularly. And Dan comes out pretty much every summer you've come out and uh, has preached the word here, but also we just get time to be together and, co- and to connect together. And I just want to say kind of like personally um, just how much our friendship has meant to me um, over the past few years. Dan's care for this church, his prayer for our church family, uh, and, and all sorts of different seasons, his care for me and for our elder team and our uh, staff team, and his just friendship has been a beautiful gift. And we're so thankful for you and for Rachel. We're thankful for your kids. And just, I'm grateful that y'all get time to hear from him and uh, as he opens up God's word for us. So we're going to pray uh, for this time together, pray for Dan, for his family, and for God to work through him. Would you join me as we pray? And Jesus, we are grateful um, for your grace, for your love, and all the ways you show it to us. And one of those ways is through um, friendship and also through you know, what your word calls gospel partnership, that we get to share together, that we get to kind of like serve together and sacrifice together and fail together and, and receive your grace together um, in this journey through life as you've called us to, to receive your love in Christ and then to proclaim that love in the city and to reflect it and to send out churches. And so um, just to partner with this brother and to see your grace in and through him and Rachel and their family and through um, Redeemer Anglican Church, what you're doing there is beautiful. And we just want to say thank you. Mm-hmm. And thank you for the churches all around this city and all around this world that are proclaiming your gospel, that are holding fast to your word, that are serving uh, this world and serving the cities and the communities you've called your people into. And so we give you thanks for Redeemer uh, Anglican Church and, and the the good work that's happening even today as they worship today uh, without Dan, without Paul. Um, just pray that you pour out grace on that community, that your gospel would be treasured, that Jesus would be treasured, and that people would learn about your love and follow mm-hmm. you there, that more and more people would come to know you and to walk with you and to worship you and to 
and to live on mission for your glory. And so we just say thank you. Mm. And then for this moment, um, Holy Spirit, we say thank you for being here. Mm. Thank you for your presence. We need you, Lord. We just sang that and we just pray it again. Lord, we need you in this hour um, to speak to us, to pour out grace on us, to teach us about the rest that you offer in Christ. And so would you, by the power of your word, through your Holy Spirit and through our brother Dan, would you pour out grace on this time together? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hey, buddy. Yeah, love you. Y'all get to, you got to watch an awkward hug, an awkward hug on stage in front of it you all. It wasn't That's awkward great. for me. It wasn't awkward for me. Yeah, it was fine. It was yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. The Reverend, the Reverend Gary McQuinn. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, good morning, y'all. <laughs> it's good to be here. Um, like Gary said, our family was members here from 2012 to 2014. And now we're over in Richmond, uh, and we've been there for the past three years, working to plant a new church. And, you know, before even Gary started talking, you probably guessed that I was maybe part of a different tribe or different denominations or something uh, based on what I'm wearing. And I have good news that I've brought collars for Gary and for Joel and for, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, I'm so out of touch. It's like back in style again. Um, so I, I do want to begin by saying this. Uh, you know, I just want to celebrate the fact that the elders and staff here at Park have such a broad vision for the kingdom of God and for the gospel expanding and going forward that they've seen fit to plant a church in a different denomination, in a different city, in a different time zone in the country. And that's incredible. When I tell folks in Richmond that we are supported by Park Church in Denver, they're like, oh, great. Like, is that an Anglican church? I'm like, no, it's not. And they're like, well, why are they supporting you? I'm like, because they're great. That's why. <laughs> Um, so we are very grateful. Thank you. Um, this is kind of the highlight of my summer every year. It's getting to come back and, and be with you all and learn from you. Um, it's been great to develop a friendship with Gary. He's the one I call when I want to complain and just gripe and moan. And so, Gary, thank you for just receiving all of that <laughs> from me. <laughs> um, so here's what we're going to talk about. You all are in the midst of a sermon series on the Psalms, right? Christ in the Psalms. And this week is Psalm 92. And this Psalm has become, as I've studied it and read it and meditated on it, it's become special to me uh, because I am tired. I'm very tired. Uh, my four kids are ages seven, six, three, and one. So just imagine that. Um, I'm tired. Uh, I'm also the solo pastor of a growing church plant. Even though things are going, you know, mostly really well, I'm tired. I feel chronically behind. Um, and so I just want to talk to you if you are tired. If you are the kind of person who is tired, if you feel like you've got more responsibility than you can possibly bear, um, if you feel like you're chronically behind, you feel like uh, everybody else somehow gets more done than you and they somehow manage to look better while doing it, um, if that's you, then uh, good news, Psalm 92 is for you. It is written for you. Um, and actually, if you're thinking right now, like, that's not me, I'm not tired, I feel pretty great right now, I'm actually killing it, had a great week, um, then good news, it's actually for you too, because it's for the other side of the spectrum as well. If you are killing it, if you're doing great, if you feel like you're on top, but you're just a little worried that if you ever slow down a bit, if you ever stopped running so hard that you'd fall behind and the whole thing would just fall apart, well then Psalm 92 is for you too, Okay. Um, so here's the deal. Um, in this incredible psalm, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the Sabbath. 
Now, I know the Sabbath is not a familiar concept or even maybe word for, for many of you, but we're going to see the Sabbath, and we're going to see that the Sabbath is this keystone habit that orients us to, um, to God and to each other. The Sabbath is this keystone habit that orients us to God and to each other. Now, I want to talk about the Sabbath a bit because I know that um, for many of you, this might seem like kind of a foreign concept. So here's what I mean when I say the word Sabbath. We've got to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. So almost in the very beginning of your Bible. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. In the beginning of the story, what we see is that God creates the world, and he does so in six stages, six periods of time. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars, sky, land, water, animals, insects. He creates the the little brown trout that live in the river just kind of west of Fort Collins that I was trying unsuccessfully to catch yesterday. Um, He makes the whole thing. And then what does he do? He rests. And he creates the seventh stage, this period of rest, and that is called the Sabbath. And so in the very beginning, God creates a rhythm for keeping time, a rhythm and a balance for work and rest. Six days of work, one day of rest. And what we see right at the start of the biblical story is that human life is to conform to that rhythm, that rhythm of work and rest, okay? Now, later in that story, tracking through the story of the Bible, later in the story in the book of Exodus, which I know y'all did a sermon series in the book of Exodus in the spring, and I know you're going to jump back into it in the fall. So in the book of Exodus chapter 20, God is giving the Israelites who, remember, are his chosen people, that he's rescued and set free from slavery in Egypt, he's giving them the Ten Commandments. That might be a little familiar to you. And one of those commandments is about the Sabbath. It's just this. It's keep the Sabbath. And what that was supposed to do for the Israelite people was to show them that they were to dwell with God um, in a state of rest and peace and not anxiety. This was really important for them because they had just been set free from slavery in Egypt from Pharaoh. And their life there was fraught with anxiety, just working around the clock, constantly in fear of being punished or even executed. And so God has set his people free. He's brought them out into the wilderness. He's giving them his laws. And his law is take a break, (laughs) rest. Why? Because I'm not Pharaoh. You've been under Pharaoh's thumb, now you're not. I'm a different kind of king. I'm a different kind of God. When you're with me, you rest. And so that command to the Israelites was supposed to be great news. Not bad news. Not restrictive news. Great news. And so in the story, tracking through the Bible, when we come to Psalm 92, what we see is that this is a song of the Sabbath. You might have noticed that. Um, in the in the little title there, subtitle under Psalm 92. It's a song of the Sabbath. And it's the only psalm out of 150 psalms that is exclusively dedicated towards the Sabbath. So none of the other 150 psalms have this title. And this is written for ordinary people, not special people, ordinary people. Ordinary people with ordinary jobs who felt at their time all the same anxieties and stresses and shortcomings that you and I feel. And so As we examine this, and as we see that the Sabbath is this keystone habit that is supposed to orient our lives to God and to each other, we're going to do this kind of in three stages, okay, as we work our way through the psalm. First, we're going to see Sabbath rest and our invitation to rest in God. And then we're going to see Sabbath resistance, that there's some cultural things that we have to resist, and the Sabbath is a good tool for that resistance. And then we're going to see Sabbath renewal, like what the Sabbath actually produces and brings in our lives, okay? So rest and resistance and renewal. That's where we're going. Let's begin with rest. Uh, We've read this. We've sung it. I'm going to read it one more time just to help us lean into this, okay? 
It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. So what's the author doing? He's simply praising God. That's what he's doing. He's worshiping God on the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath is a time where we stop working so that we can rest and be still long enough to notice and appreciate all the things that we don't often have time to notice and appreciate, which namely is how good God is. That's what the author's doing. He's stopped long enough to notice and appreciate how good God is. And so in this first few verses, we see that we need Sabbath rest in order to worship. Because true worship, think about this, true worship flows from enjoyment of God. That's, that's where worship comes from. And so we know this because that's really how worship works for everything, right? Anything that you really enjoy, you begin to praise. And so if you visit a new restaurant and the food is great and the decor is just kind of really on point, then you'll begin to talk about it. You'll begin to praise that place, um, that chef, that owner. Um, you won't just kind of keep it to yourself. It'll kind of come out of you because you're enjoying it. And so you'll begin to, in a sense, worship and praise. Um, there is this incredible story I want to share with you. It broke uh, earlier this year in the spring, and it very quickly went viral online. So I'm guessing maybe a few of you might have seen this. But for those of you that haven't, here's the story. It's a nine-year-old boy named Ronan who went to the Boston Symphony Hall with his grandfather to hear a piece by Mozart. And uh, after the whole kind of symphony took place, or at the very end, the music swells to a crescendo um, and then concludes, and the entire concert hall is silent. And in that silence, you hear, if you listen to the, the audio recording, you can hear this. In that silence, you hear this child's voice from up in, somewhere up in the balcony just explain or exclaim, Wow! <laughs> and everybody did exactly what you just did. Everybody in the concert hall begins to kind of chuckle and laugh, like, oh, isn't that, like, cute? And then it hits them. That is the appropriate response. Why didn't I say that? And then they all start clapping. Um, and so the whole concert hall breaks out into applause. And they're, they're kind of applauding the musicians. They're actually really applauding the boy. Because everyone has this moment of recognition, oh, that's the right way to respond to something truly beautiful, is to just say, wow. Um, and... The staff at this concert hall, they really wanted to find this boy. And it took them a little bit of time. They had to do some research, but they figured out who it was. Um, and that's where the story got, that story got really interesting because Ronan, this nine-year-old boy, is on the autism spectrum. He's relatively nonverbal. His grandfather was taking him to the symphony because it was one of the only things that could make him slow down and stop and pay attention without getting distracted. And so this sweet little boy, who hardly ever speaks who struggles to focus and who is so overwhelmed by beauty, he broke out into worship. I think that shows us just a little bit of what the Sabbath is to be for us. We've got to slow down and stop and rest. Why? In order to enjoy God. And when we do that, we'll be so overwhelmed by his beauty and goodness that we will begin to worship him. And so the Sabbath is this keystone habit. It orients us to God. It also orients us to each other, which we'll talk about later. First, because it's the practice of resting from work in order to appreciate God's goodness and beauty so that we can enjoy him. And this orients us to him and to reality. And all this begins with rest. 
with stopping. Do you see that? Okay. Now, if you want to undermine worship, if you say we're a pretty wicked person, you just wanted to undermine worship, just help make somebody stop worshiping, what would you do? Would you try to convince them that God is bad? That he's just like, that worship is a waste of time or maybe he's not worth it? No, you, you wouldn't need to go to all that trouble. Here's what you would do. You just need to undermine rest. You just need to undermine the Sabbath. Take away Sabbath rest and you take away the place in a person's life where they will notice and appreciate the goodness of God. And therefore you take away the opportunity for them to enjoy God. And, this, and we know this because the same is true in any relationship. If you, if you, if you want to undermine a marriage relationship. Think about this. It's a little, little disheartening. If you want to undermine a marriage relationship, you don't need to convince a husband or a wife that their spouse isn't worthy of their love or that their spouse is bad or something. You just need to take away the margin in their life, the extra time, so that they no longer have opportunities to notice and appreciate what they love about each other, so that they won't enjoy each other. That's how you undermine a relationship, any relationship, including our relationship with God. And so, We've talked about Sabbath rest, but because we tend to be just so distracted and we tend to not rest, the Sabbath also serves as this form of resistance, resistance to the busyness and the distraction and the frenetic pace of our culture. So let's talk about that now. Let's talk about Sabbath as resistance. We're going to go back to our text. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, They are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies, and my ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Okay. Two words that might have tripped you up in that reading there. They at least tripped me up the first time I read it. Uh, The word stupid (laughs) um, and the word fool. Like, who knew the word stupid was in the Bible? Um, These words have nothing to do with our mental capacity, only with the way we use it. So these words are about dullness, about not seeing, about not perceiving. The author is describing people that are blind to the reality that's like right in front of them. It's people who can't see what's right there. And so he goes on to describe that these are the kind of people who, he uses this metaphor of grass, like they sprout like grass and they flourish. And what he's saying is that there are people all around us, maybe even us, who don't see the goodness and the beauty of God, so we don't enjoy Him, so we don't worship Him, and yet we seem to be doing just fine. That's what he's describing. The image of grass sprouting and flourishing, that's a metaphor for quick growth, right? Things going quickly. And these people are working hard, and they see no reason to rest from their work. Instead, they work straight through the week in order to get ahead, right? And so what the author is doing is he's naming the temptation to reject Sabbath rest because it's impractical. The temptation to reject Sabbath rest because it's going to cost you too much. You're going to fall behind everybody else. Um, I just wonder, if, if you and I were getting to know each other, um, maybe after the service, and, and I were to ask you, truly, like, how are you doing? Um, I wonder if maybe nine out of ten of you would say something, if you were anything like uh, people in Richmond, you would say something like, good, uh, yeah, pretty busy, pretty busy, but um, yeah, let's get a coffee sometime with, when things slow down. That's like, I have heard that phrase so many times. <laughs> I have said that phrase so many times. Um, I think this is just, that, just our, our own language as a window into how quick we are moving. So I want to tell the truth here. Many of us, for many of us, the concept of the Sabbath does not feel like good news. 
It feels restrictive. Like it inhibits our flourishing because we're going to get less done. And so the command of the Sabbath for us feels like, does God just want me to accomplish less? Does he want me to fall behind? Does he not want me to be productive here? Um, and this is hard for me. It's, it's kind of ironic. When I was, before I left Richmond to fly here, I was, my wife Rachel, in her very sweet and kind way, was asking me like, hey, what are you talking about? And I said, oh, Psalm 92, what's that? Oh, it's the song of the Sabbath. She said, oh, that's funny. Um, and I said, why, honey? <laughs> um, and she said, because you're so bad at the Sabbath. <laughs> so I'm, y'all, I'm a pilgrim on the road with you. Uh, I'm just on the journey with you on this one. I love getting things done. Are there a few things more satisfying than a to-do list with lots of check marks next to each one? Do you guys ever do, you guys ever do this? Do you guys ever write stuff down after you do it just so you can check it off? Um, we, we share this weird dysfunction. We'll, we all need therapy. Um, it makes me feel more significant and more important and more competent and more respectable. So I love books and podcasts about productivity and efficiency, anything that's going to help me get more done in less time. Full Focus Planner, anybody use that? That was designed for people like me. Um, I want to squeeze every last ounce of usefulness out of every day. And so um, Paul actually teases me for this all the time. I've been known to say ridiculous things like, I wish I had 50 hours in a day because that way I could get done all the things that I wake up hoping I will get done that day. I want to get up earlier. I want to stay up later. I want to stretch the work day as far as I can, maximize efficiency, maximize productivity, just turn myself into a machine as much as I can. I want to ask a question. What's at stake here? What's really going on? This approach to life that I am so prone to, and I suspect at least a few of you are, this approach to life dehumanizes us. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, this, this idea is actually here in the text. Uh, that word that tripped us up earlier, that word stupid, um, I want to tell you more about that word. Um, in Hebrew, it's, it's this word ba'ar. And it's, it's a conjunction word. It's, it's, a, it's a word that means like human beast, like human animal together. And so what the author is trying to say is that these people who work straight through the week, who just reject Sabbath and just try to get ahead, what they're doing is they're debasing themselves below their humanity. When we fight the limits of our humanity, it, it think about it, it like decreatures us. It uncreates what God has created. And so the Sabbath is grounded in creation. Remember we talked about Genesis chapter 2? The Sabbath is grounded in creation. It's part of the fabric of our world. And so rejecting the Sabbath is a rejection of the created order. Because it's a rejection of God's created order and the gifts that he wants to give us, it's actually a form of ingratitude. It's a desire for control. It's a desire to be God-like in a sense, right? Do more, be more. Um, and if you think about it that way, it actually is an echo of the original sin that we see in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're not familiar with the story, here's how that part of the story goes. When the first humans stretched out their hand to take forbidden fruit, what was their motivation? What were they trying to do? Well, they were trying to be like God, right? And I just wonder, and I think, we, we haven't really stopped doing that. We're still stretching. We're still reaching. Stretching out that workday. Maximizing productivity. Do more. Be more. And it's tragically ironic because we were actually made to be like God. <laughs> we were made in His image. In the image of a God who rests, though. That's the image we're made in. 
but it's not enough for us. And so we want to do something more. We want to be something more. And it's something that we don't really understand. So we work all the time, straight through the week, wearing ourselves thinner and thinner and thinner. And the image that I've had this week in my mind as I've thought about this is of a parent kind of standing over their child and they're watching their child work on something and work on something and the child is skipping meals and and skipping their nap and and staying up late and just working and working and working and the parent is starting to get concerned and the parent is trying to intervene and the parent is trying to say hey you don't have to do that you can slow down you can take a break let's take a nap let's get a snack let's do something else but the child won't listen and just kind of keeps working and it's like this voice from heaven just has to yell stop But we don't want to listen because the real voice that we're listening to so often is not the voice of the Lord, but it's this internal voice, this internal slave driver. And it's almost like we're back in Egypt. There's a, a theologian named Walter Brueggemann that I found helpful, and he, he asks these questions about Psalm 92. He says, do you lie awake at night remembering all the things you were supposed to do? Frustrated, disappointed, embarrassed, guilty that you didn't meet expectations, that you didn't accomplish all the things that you set out to accomplish that day. And then thinking about Egypt, he says, do you fall asleep counting bricks? Do you dream of more bricks that you have yet to make or bricks that you did make that were actually flawed? And he says, we dream so because we have forgotten the exodus. We've forgotten and we're still in Egypt. And so I just want to share with you, if we persist in rejecting the Sabbath rest of God, then we will receive, unfortunately, the very thing that we have been working so hard to achieve, which is a mechanical, inhumane, uncreated life that will lead one day to an unrestful eternity. Um, There's a character named Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, and in one book called The Magician's Nephew, he says to one of the characters this phrase that I've never forgotten. He said, everyone gets what they want. They don't always like it. All get what they want, but they don't always like it. And so in the practice of Sabbath keeping, what we see is it's this form of resistance. The Sabbath is not only an invitation to rest, it's also a way of saying no. And so the pressure to achieve more, to do more, to be more, the Sabbath says no. And to the temptation to work around the clock, driven by this internal slave master, the Sabbath says, stop. And so the Sabbath is a form of resistance, setting aside one day a week where you do not work, where you do not strive, where you do not compete, where you don't accomplish, where you don't achieve anything, and you rest from your labor. Now, I I wonder if some of you are thinking this. Uh, If you've been a Christian for a while... You may have heard somewhere along the way that um, all of the Old Testament rules perhaps don't apply anymore because Jesus came. And Jesus came to set us free from bondage to the law, which he did. That's true. Um, But that may make you think, okay, well, so the Sabbath is not for me because I live in 2019 and I'm a Christian. I'm not like an ancient Jew, so Sabbath is not for me. So I think that's a fair question. I think it's a fair concern and it's worth addressing. What we see in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that Jesus is actually the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he's called. Which means that Christ doesn't just keep the Sabbath perfectly, like he didn't just do it right, but he actually fulfills it. And here's how he does that. In Jesus, the God of rest, who created the world and rested and invites humanity into his rest, the God of rest enters our restless world. And he does that in the incarnation of Jesus. And then he gives up his rest in order to seek our rest. That's how Christ fulfills the Sabbath. And Jesus, in his lifetime, was accused of being a Sabbath breaker. 
If you remember some of the stories from the gospel accounts, he was always accused of being a Sabbath breaker because he often healed people on the Sabbath. But what his accusers didn't see, what they were blind to, um, was that Jesus' miraculous healings were actually foretastes of his coming kingdom. They were supposed to be foretastes of the eternal rest that he was and is seeking for us. So Jesus' healing on the Sabbath wasn't just, like, it wasn't just technically okay. It wasn't just permissible. It wasn't just allowed. It was actually perfectly appropriate. Because is there a better way to love your neighbor than to seek their rest on the day of rest? No. That's the best way you could love your neighbor. So Jesus shows us actually what the Sabbath is for, and he fulfills it. So on the cross, Jesus shows us that initial desire that we have all the way since the beginning to reach out and to take more and to be like God, Jesus shows us on the cross where that actually leads. On the cross, Jesus shows us that if we will not rest in God, then we will not rest at all. And as he died, what words were on his lips? What words were on Jesus' lips as he died? He said, it is finished. And so for us, the Sabbath now points both backwards and forwards. Here's why. Jesus' work, his labors to seek our eternal rest are done. They are complete on the cross. And so the Sabbath now points backwards to God creating the world and instilling rest in the fabric of the universe and also in God giving his commands to his people, commanding them, rest. I'm your king now, and when I'm king, we are resting. It not only points backwards to that, it also points forwards because of Christ to the eternal rest of God's people in Christ's new creation. And so I need to make this point. Here's what we're not saying. If you leave this morning with this idea, we've, we've missed it. Here's what we're not saying. We're not saying, look, life is crazy. Uh, if you can be disciplined enough to practice the Sabbath, you'll probably experience some sanity and you might even grow spiritually. Um, that's not what we're saying. There's probably a bit of truth in that, but that's not the point. What we are saying is that the Sabbath is now a sign of Christ's work on our behalf. We rest now, we can rest now and actually take a Sabbath because in his life, death, and resurrection, he has accomplished everything that we need. And we will enjoy eternal rest one day because of his resurrection. That's what the Sabbath is for us now. And so is keeping the Sabbath an expression of legalism? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's an expression of hope. That's what the Sabbath is for now. And so the Sabbath is a gift from Jesus for you to receive and to begin to embody as an act of faith. The Sabbath is not a restrictive rule to diminish your productivity. The Sabbath is a humanizing gift for your freedom. Let me say that again. The Sabbath is not a restrictive rule to diminish your productivity. The Sabbath is a humanizing gift for your freedom. So what are we talking about here? We've talked about how the Sabbath is a keystone habit that orients us to God. First, because the Sabbath is rest from our work, which allows us to enjoy God and worship Him. Second, because the Sabbath is resistance to the busy and restless and dehumanizing pace of maximizing productivity. And because of Christ's work on our behalf, the Sabbath is a gift that we can receive and embody in this life because one day we will receive and we will embody it in full. And so now I think we're ready for the third one. So third and finally, the Sabbath brings renewal, both for us and for our neighbors. And here's how it does that. We're back to our text. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. 
So uh, I need to clear something up. The palm tree that the author is referring to here is not a coconut tree, okay? So like get that image out of your mind. Um, that's not what this is. This is a, a tree called a date palm, and that actually matters. So a date palm is a staple in Middle Eastern diet. A date palm can grow up to 75 feet high. It can yield, get this, up to 300 pounds of fruit every year. Um, and it can live to 100 years old. It's an incredibly important and productive and useful tree. But it usually doesn't start producing fruit until it's 8 to 10 years old. And it doesn't grow quickly. It grows very slowly. So what the author is doing is he's contrasting the date palm tree with the grass earlier on. Those who reject the Sabbath initially grow very fast, but they don't endure. They can't sustain it. And those who keep the Sabbath initially grow slowly, but they do endure for decade after decade, continually bearing fruit well into old age. And so the image that's conjured up here is of a Christian who grows sweeter and wiser and actually more useful in the kingdom the older he or she gets. Now, what kind of fruit are we talking about? So this is a metaphor of bearing fruit. And what we see and what we might assume is that when the Apostle Paul, all the way in the New Testament in the book of Galatians, describes the fruit of the Spirit, we might imagine that he has the fruit of a date palm tree in mind. And so what are the fruit of the Spirit? If you remember them, they're love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you just imagine with me how embracing and embodying the rhythm of God's created order, resting every seventh day, we would begin to cultivate these kind of virtues within you. You know, because love and joy, they flow downstream from enjoyment, right? That's logical. Um, we've already said how we've got to slow down and stop in order to enjoy something or anything. Peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, these are all downstream from embracing your limits, not from stretching your limits. And then kindness and goodness and faithfulness, these are downstream from noticing and appreciating the gift that other people are, which is to say that they only happen in the slow places in life. There's a, an 18th century British preacher named Charles Spurgeon, uh, and this is what he says about this. He says, good fruits arise from the peacefulness of the spirit. Bad fruits arise from busyness and maximizing productivity. I can't believe he wrote that in the 18th century. That's crazy. In the beginning, God blessed people and he said, be fruitful. And the God who gave the blessing and invited fruitfulness is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so it requires Sabbath rest in order to bear the fruit of the kingdom. It requires Sabbath rest in order to bear the fruit of the kingdom. Now, closing out here, verse 14, this image of being full of sap, evergreen, this points to the continual renewal that Sabbath brings into our lives, enabling us to be more faithful and therefore more fruitful over the long haul. And so this is important because in a culture... Um, especially Denver probably has this more to the max than Richmond does, in a culture that insists that if you're going to do anything, if you're going to accomplish anything, then you've got to do it quickly and you've got to do it while you're young. Um, in a culture that says that, the Sabbath says that's ridiculous. <laughs> the Sabbath says no. And so to a culture that thinks that the work rhythms of Silicon Valley are the way forward, the Sabbath says absolutely not. You've got it backwards. It's the simple rhythm of limited work and rest. That in which long-term fruitfulness will come. So let me summarize here before we conclude. What have we said? We've said that Sabbath rest um, helps us slow down. It helps us notice God's goodness and enjoy Him and worship Him. That's Sabbath rest. We've also said there's Sabbath resistance, which is pushing back against the dehumanizing pace of our culture and our hearts that is always seeking to do more and to be more. 
And then we've seen how Jesus actually fulfills the Sabbath. And so now he offers it to us as a gift, not just for our sanity, but also as a foretaste of the eternal rest that he secured for us in his death and resurrection. And then finally, we saw how the Sabbath brings renewal to us, making us slowly over time into sweeter fruit of the Spirit people who endure over the long haul. Now, by way of application, I want to offer just a couple uh, thoughts, very practical next steps. And the first is, the Sabbath is not an idea. It is an act, okay? So we're not just trying to get in a Sabbath state of mind while we work. That's not what this is. (laughs) It's not an idea. It's an act. It affects your Google Calendar. Um, This is a gift that you have to receive in order for it to be useful. In order for this gift to work, it has to be received. And so I want to just, just consider um, blacklisting the word busy. Just, just strike it from your vocabulary. Um, strike the phrase, when things slow down. They're not going to stop saying it. Um, just strike that from your vocabulary. Try Sabbathing, if we make it a verb, with God's people on a Sunday. Because the Sabbath is communal. It's not just an individual thing. Take Sunday off. And if you have a job that insists that you work on a Sunday, get a different job. Um, or if you can't, not everybody can do that. If you can't, then pick a different day. That's okay. Sabbath is a keystone habit that orients our lives to God. And so here, this last thing I want to say is, if you're anything like me, what you'll do is you'll go home and you'll, you'll try to like work with your calendar and figure out what you can move around in order to create a little bit of time to have a Sabbath. And I want to encourage you to not do that. Do it this way instead. Instead... Mark Sabbath first on the calendar and let everything else come after that. So in other words, don't try to limit what you do in order to make room for the Sabbath. Allow the Sabbath to limit what you do. Does that make sense? And that will tell you what else in your life you have room to do. That will orient your life. So towards the end of the service, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be invited at the end of the service to come forward and to receive the bread and wine of communion, as you all do every week. And I want to just ask you, have you ever thought of the elements of communion, the bread and wine which are on this table right over here, those elements as the fruit of Christ's work on your behalf? That's what they are. What we're about to eat and drink is the fruit, symbolically, the fruit of Jesus' labors for us, for our rest. And so when you come forward at the end of the service and you stretch out your hands, what you're saying in that action is, I want to receive rest from the Lord. I want Christ's work to work for me. I want to rest for my work. I want the fruit of his labors to bear good fruit in my life. That's what you're saying when you come forward to receive the bread and the wine. So we're going to do that here in just a moment. First, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are the kind of God who wove rest into the fabric of this universe. And you have invited us to share in your rest Thank you for being that kind of God. Thank you for being that kind of king. Thank you for inviting us into your rest. I pray this morning that we would have the gratitude and the attention and the willingness to simply receive it. We pray in your name. Amen.